Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we are uh, in the process of uh, slowly working our way through the book of Romans. And uh, if you're just joining us, uh, you can always go to deepinscripture.com and listen to the previous programs. We're up to chapter 8. And uh, if I were to to uh, to grab a scripture that describes why we do this program, I would grab Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen, in which Paul, who we're studying in Romans, said to his fledgling bishop friend Timothy, "All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness." that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And to me, the significance of that verse from 2 Timothy, which forms the basis for this program, is that admittedly, previously, when I was a Presbyterian pastor of the mindset of sola scriptura, I took that verse to be a foundation for the idea that all I need to know what is true is Scripture alone. And I believe that therefore Scripture alone was sufficient to know what is true. And I've subsequently discovered by the mercy of God the necessity of always interpreting Scripture within the context in which it was given to us by our Lord. And we've received Scripture through the church. And it was through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that the human authors wrote the books of the Bible, but it was the bishops of the church guided by the Spirit that determined which books would be in this book we call the Bible, and that in the context, context of the apostolic tradition, the deposit of faith that our Lord passed on to his apostles and then they passed on to their disciples and on and on, it was in this context that we have received the written Word of God, and therefore the correct interpretation of the word is in the context of the teacher through whom we've received those words. And Ken, I welcome you to the program again to, to join me in this study. And I just thought it might be good just to begin there before we begin with the email to emphasize that the book of Romans, and we're looking at Romans 8, apart from the teaching of the church, can be and has been misinterpreted, uh, not as accurate interpreted to imply a great variety of things and why it's important to interpret Romans 8 in the context not only of all of Romans, but all of sacred tradition. Well, that's right, Marcus, because in fact, um, the book of Romans has been uh, a very favorite of, of many uh, authors from the very beginning. Uh, for example, St. John Chrysostom in the 4th century the bishop or patriarch of Constantinople uh, did a long series of lectures on Romans, as well as Paul's other of Paul's epistles. Um, and St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a commentary on it in the Middle Ages. But it becomes, of course, especially well known in the Western world uh, <clears throat> through the influence of Martin Luther when he, in reading uh, Romans chapter 1, declared that uh, the gospel is that... Uh, we are free from our sins by the declaration of God. You remember he quoted that text, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. Paul saying that in Romans 
116. Um, <clears throat> speaking about the righteousness of God, Luther started a movement that has an impact even today. So it is important for us to ask the question, in what, with what parameters or context are we going to use to look at this text today? Yeah, and, and just the, the simple phrase which we'll look at today, in Christ Jesus. Well, what does mm -hmm. that mean? And if one approaches Scripture through the lenses of their own prejudices, their own struggles, uh, their own struggle with sin, one can come up with different interpretations of what that means, which is essentially mm -hmm. what Luther did himself, uh, was out of his own struggle. That, that parallels what Paul describes in chapter 7. Luther came up with a different conclusion, which put a different spin on the entire book of Romans, which led to uh, the divisions that we have in Christendom today, sadly. So it's our goal in this program to look at Scripture through the lenses of the church. How has the church understood these passages for 2,000 years? And we're not saying we're experts at this, but we pray uh, that we will convey that which is true. And, and um, we would encourage you, the listener, to look up what some of the greatest things can about the new catechism is that you can go to the index of the catechism and look up any verse of Scripture and see how the catechism uses mm -hmm. and addresses the meaning of Scripture. And that's a great help for us. Mm -hmm. Today, before we get to Romans 8, we'd like to, though, uh, look at an email that we received from Benjamin. It's a great email, uh, a very short email, but I, uh, it's like the tip of an iceberg on touching on an, a, a very important topic that Paul addressed in Romans. Benjamin writes, if the church is the mystical body of Christ made up of believers, and the Catholic church is the church built by Christ, then how are the two connected? And is there a difference between them? Now, Ken, uh, there's probably a simple answer, but there's a layer of difficult, convoluted, uh, complicated answers to this question, Ken, because, you know, one of the questions is, is the church that we see on the corner equivalent to the mystical body of Christ? To what extent is it the church worldwide um, in union with, with the Pope? Uh, what about outside the boundaries of the church? I mean, all these issues are actually quite mm -hmm. relevant today in a, a, a Christendom that is growing to emphasize and appreciate our call to ecumenism with those mm -hmm. outside the literal bounds of the Catholic Church. Well, this issue, this issue is very much on my mind lately, Marcus, because uh, I've been uh, translating and commenting on uh, the classic treatise by St. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, the Bishop of Carthage from 248 to 258 uh, A.D., um, and um, he deals precisely with this question. The, the treatise, in case our uh, hearers have not heard the name of it, it's called On the Unity of the Catholic Church, De Unitate Ecclesiae Catholicae. And in that, our, in that um, treatise, uh, St. Cyprian is addressing the very question of how can the church be unified and is it wrong to try to divide the church, which he clearly says it is wrong, um, but it, it raises this question about what exactly are the boundaries of the church. Um, 
And there's there's two views that I think are prominent in the Western world today, actually three. Um, One of them is that which a lot of uh, when we might call low church Protestants would believe independent Bible church Protestants. And that is that the only thing that's really important is the mystical body of Christ. And so the organizational aspect of the body of Christ, that is what building you're in or what, you know, who your leaders are and so forth, that's all kind of unimportant. What's really important is whether a person knows Jesus is in Christ and therefore is part of the mystical body of Christ. Uh, Another view uh, would recognize that, uh, let's say on the other end of it, would be the Catholic view, and that is that, yes, it recognizes that people are members of the mystical body of Christ by virtue of their baptism, by virtue of faith in Christ, but that is not in distinction from, but it's conjoined with uh, the institutional church, the church with bishops and the church with the pope and so forth and so on. That's the formal church. Those are the leaders of the church. So it does matter in this view, in the second view, it does matter which church you quote-unquote belong to, even if the mystical boundaries of body of Christ is not is exactly the same or coterminous with um, the uh, the Catholic Church. And there are church, there are views in the middle as well, views represented by Orthodox Christians, sometimes by Anglican Christians, where the there's an emphasis upon the formal church, the organization, but at the same time recognizing that um that there's um a mystical element to the church. Um those people, however, would in the middle there would not would not necessarily say it's important to be united to the Pope. So there's these different views, and the church itself, the Catholic Church itself, has struggled with this very issue. In the Feeney, in the in in the case of Father Leonard Feeney in the 1950s, and continues to struggle with with the question of what is exactly the relationship between the church, meaning the formal membership of the church, and the mystical body uh, within it. Um, and so it's it's a complex issue. It may be just, uh, quote, two paragraphs from the Catechism. There's a large section in the Catechism. Uh, uh, before I get to that, though, the, it's important to recognize that even in the email, the way it was phrased, there's, this demonstrates the, the struggle with answering. It's a wonderful email, but addressing this issue because the way you phrase your question kind of sets up uh, the answer, because he says, if the church is the mystical body of Christ made up of believers. Now, mm-hmm. see, he's beginning with a definition that can carry the assumption of that it's made up mainly of this invisible, universal, invisible body of believers. And so we'd have to back off and say, well, that in itself is a is an inaccurate assumption that um, is, if that's all it is, then you have to, well, what defines a believer? And uh, if if it is only an invisible co- uh, fellowship of believers known only to God, then that causes a problem with this other statement by St. Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 when he says that the, that the, uh, uh, the family of God, the church, is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And the question is, how can an invisible 
church be a pillar and bulwark of anything. And so for, for a church to be a pillar and bulwark of truth, one must be able to identify there is the church, and that is the church that I belong to, and that is the church that is the church that Christ built, and that is the church that is this trustworthy foundation of truth. One must be able to do that. If one can't do that, then in fact, that's why this idea that the church is nothing but an invisible uh, collection of believers has led to the great divisions in Christianity today. And, and even a Protestant book says that there's over 30,000 independent denominations in the world, all of which are divided primarily over interpretation of Scripture. And so there we see that if it's an invisible body, then if it's only an invisible body, then it loses its ability to defend what's true. And in paragraphs 7790 and 790, did you want to comment on that, Ken, before I read the chapter? No, no, go ahead, please. There's two chapters in the Catechism that I just want to draw attention to that address this. And there's much more there, but just in the, the brief time, 790 says, believers who respond to God's word to become members of the Christ body become intimately united with him. And quoting Lumen Gentium, the catechism says, in that body, the life of Christ is communicated to those who believe and who through the sacraments are united in a hidden and real way to Christ in his passion and glorification. This is especially true of baptism, which unites us to Christ's death and resurrection and the Eucharist by which really sharing in the body of the Lord, we are taken up into communion with him and with one another. Now that paragraph emphasizes that the normal way one becomes a part of the mystical body of Christ is through the sacraments our Lord gave us and that have been preserved and proclaimed and uh, propagated throughout the world in the church. Baptism, which we'll talk about today in Romans 8, is how we become in Christ. And being in Christ essentially means being in his body, in the church. And even more so, our Lord says in John 6 that it's through the eating of his body and drinking his blood that he is in us and we are in him. And the church has always said that the normal way of this intimate union with Christ comes through the Eucharist. In paragraph 791, uh, the Catechism goes on to say that the body's unity does not do away with the diversity of its members. In the building up of Christ's body, there is engaged a diversity of members and function. There is only one Spirit who, according to his own richness and the needs of the ministries, gives his different gifts for the welfare of the church. The unity of the mystical body produces and stimulates charity among the faithful. So the point being, there is this diversity amongst the unity of the church. And uh, as a result, uh, Ken, isn't it true, as a result of chapter 7 of Romans, some of us are a little bit more faithful representatives of the mystical body of Christ than others. Some of us have succumbed to sin and are not good representatives of the church to which we belong by grace. Others who may not be official, visible members of the visible body of Christ, yet through the work of grace in their hearts, might be more faithful members of the mystical body. So this is why even St. Augustine, 
who's uh, was the original proponent of the idea of the of this invisible church in his uh, book the city of god emphasized that uh, we admit the mystery of the mystical body, that there are those outside who are maybe more faithful members than some of us inside, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the normal understanding of the church are those who through baptism have been united with Christ and with one another. Well, there's a couple of things in Scripture, I think, that point us in, in a particular direction, Marcus. Uh, one of them is the the story of um, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You, When you read that story carefully, it becomes very clear that Jesus goes to the well for the purpose of encountering this woman because he asked her for something to drink, which was something that a Jewish man was cert- probably not ask a woman and probably not ask a, certainly not a, a Samaritan woman. And when they get into the dialogue about the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews, Jesus affirms in no uncertain terms, salvation is from the Jews. It's not from the Samaritans. But he also declares that the time is coming when those who would worship the Father must worship him in spirit and truth. And that's going to include the Samaritans. In other words, God was already reaching out in the life of Christ to the those that were outside the covenant people, outside the outside the official church, you might say. But she was already in her heart uh, moving toward the church as part of the mystical church. And so Jesus, Jesus is affirming yeah. both here. One, the spiritual reality that she is seeking, but two, that the Jews are, in fact, the chosen people. Uh, there's other instances, I think, in, in Scripture where you you see this kind of thing as well. Um, and and so you see, for example, in the book of Acts, it's clear that the church is not just a collection of believers that happen to be getting together because when Paul and Barnabas and then later Silas go uh, on their missionary journeys through Asia Minor, what do they do in every place? Well, they establish a church and they set up presbyters and bishops and so forth so that there is a structure to the church. Uh, the question that is very oppressing question today is whether that structure can be just local and individual because many bible for example bible churches or bible chapels where they would have the the structure of elders or presbyters they'd have the structure of deacons and so forth um but does that individual and local structure need to be unified into one body St. Cyprian faced the same exact problem. Sometimes we think that maybe the first problems arose, that as Catholics think that the, the first problems arose with Luther in the, seventh, in the 16th century, but that is far from true. I mean, the problems of schism and heresy have been there right from the very beginning, and that's the problems that St. Cyprian was facing in Carthage in the mid-third century. And his question, his call to people is, who would dare to to introduce schism into the church? Who, with the mind of Christ, with the heart of Christ, with the love of Christ within them, would dare try to split the church? That is a, that is a grievous sin, is basically what he says. He says in chapter 6 of that treatise on the unity of the Catholic Church, he cannot have God as his father who doesn't have the church as his mother. In other words, it is necessary 
for us to be unified, not only on a local scale, but on a universal scale as well. Yeah, Augustine, in one of his letters dealing with one of the divisive groups during his own day, said, uh, I can't quote it directly, uh, perfectly by memory, but he basically said that even if the leaders of the church themselves become untrustworthy, it is never an excuse for schism. And he, he called about the, uh, the desire to always seek unity, fulfillment of John chapter 17. You know, the danger is we look at the divi division amongst Christians, um, and one can, over history, then conclude, decide, well, maybe it doesn't matter what church you're in, um, and succumbing to this pressure to uh, emphasize indifferentism. It doesn't really matter. But I, I think the quote that you gave, Ken, and uh, the quote from St. Augustine emphasize that the danger is there's not a one of us qualified to decide for God what is, what is true about the church. Uh, we have to recognize what we have received, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, to stand firm on that, the traditions that we've received. That's what we are to trust, not to lift ourselves up above the deposit of faith and decide, I look at the world around me and I think I know better what the church is or what it means to be a Christian. I think I know better what the gospel is. And sadly, that's happening all around us, Ken, with these independent churches that have no connection to traditional Christianity, independent churches uh, kind of recreating worship, recreating doctrine, recreating what yeah. it means to follow Jesus because they look at the world and they think, you know, I think the church has had it wrong all these years, rather than recognize the battle that Paul talks about in seven, chapter seven of Romans, and what we're going to look at in eight and our need to remain in Jesus Christ. Well, that's a, a great uh, a great point, Marcus. It's when you study the history of the lives of Jesus, uh, I suppose most people have read maybe one life or two life, two lives of Jesus, you know, written by, by scholars or preachers or whatever. But there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole history of doing this. And when you realize that, you realize that people end up seeing Jesus through their own eyes. Yeah. In other words, they, they yeah. remake Jesus the way they want him to be. Into themselves. Maybe before we leave... Well, exactly, and and uh, in, in in and so they Jesus becomes what they want him to be, and that's we all have that that temptation, but the question is how do we balance that with the witness of the church throughout all the ages? Uh, you know, before we leave this topic, we may want to just point out to our listeners today that in the Second Vatican Council's document, Lumen Gentium, that's the Constitution on the Church. Section 14 is really instructive um, because what it says is that the church is necessary for salvation. Just as Christ is the one mediator and he's the way of salvation. And he goes on to say, hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. In other words, the church is necessary, and that means the institutional church, but it doesn't let Catholics off the hook yeah. <laughs> because it goes on to say that even those incorporated into the church, that is, those who are Catholic, one does not, however, 
persevere, who does not persevere in charity is not saved. In other words, just being in the Catholic Church without living the life, walking the walk as well as talking the talk, uh, one cannot be saved. He goes on to say, all the children of the Church should remember that their exalted condition results not from their own merits, but from the grace of Christ. If they fail to respond in thought, word, and deed to that grace, not only shall they not be saved, but they shall be judged more severely. In other words, it's crucial that we have, we not only that we are in the church, but that the church is in us. The meaning of the church, Christ himself, is in us. I, I think I'll add, Ken, just, just a qualification for our viewers. We encourage you to read Lumen Gentium, read the Catechism on this side. The church does recognize that those who are separated from the church as a result of the divisions that have happened through the last couple hundred years are not necessarily guilty for that decision. Uh, many people have right. been born outside right. the church, have never been taught, not, not only that the Catholic Church isn't the church established by Christ, but many Christians today don't even believe that being a part of a church is necessary for salvation. Uh, that only faith in Christ, regardless of what church you belong to. So the church doesn't recognizes that the guilt of division does not rest on those people. However, and the church recognizes that anyone who was saved by the mercy of God is saved through the church by Jesus Christ. The church recognizes that. However, we recognize the, the normalcy of the sacraments, of the Eucharist, of being a part of the body of Christ. And therefore, that's why the church is committing an evangelization to reach out to proclaim the fullness of the church, the necessity of that. That's what our Lord called us to do when he preached in John 17 about the need to be one in, in, the, in him through the Father and the Holy Spirit in the way that he is one with the Father. And so that's our call that's our reason for this program, is to, to emphasize the necessity. And Ken, you know, knowing that the church is the church that our Lord established is a work of grace. And I know you and I both can recognize that the, the gift we received in discovering this was not because of our great intellect. It was because, uh, regardless of that, the Lord opened our heart to the beauty of the church. Let's come back in a bit, and we'll start looking at Romans chapter 8. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi with, with Dr. Kenneth Howe. We spent the first half hour discussing the email, which really can uh, connects with, with the book of Romans and e- even what we're looking at now, because we're going to talk in chapter 8 of Romans, verses 1 through 11, about what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And, you know, I would say that there's a direct parallel, direct connection between when Paul talks about being in Christ Jesus, which is one of the common phrases that Paul uses throughout his letters, in Christ, um, that he's also thinking about the church as equivalent to that. And at the time at which Paul would have been writing, he would not have yet anticipated all the history and uh, problems and divisions, and then the necessity of what we just spoke about in the first half hour of the program. At, at that earliest stage of the church, uh, if, if you look at what he meant by in Christ, in the context of all his letters, of the context of the early church writers, uh, of the context of, of the words of our Lord Jesus, we would have understood that it is this body that we become a part of through baptism. But Ken, uh, before we jump into this passage, uh, I'd like you to talk about how Romans 8, actually Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8 can essentially be seen as a sandwich. Yeah, it's, I think it's true. On both, both sides of the sandwich and the bread is, you might say, um, chapter 8, especially the end of it, uh, and, and going on the other side is, is chapter 6. Uh, perhaps uh, you'll recall, or our, our listeners will recall, that um, Paul gave this startling declaration in chapter 6 when he asked himself the question, as well as his audience, uh, should we remain in sin that grace may abound? And he gave a absolute no to that. May it not be, uh, God forbid, and the reason he gives why we should not remain in sin is because we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. He says this in chapter 6, verse 3. And he asks it as a question, a rhetorical question. Don't you know that we are baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. So we have died to sin. And he goes on later in that chapter to say, 
knowing that we've died to sin and we're alive to God, this life that we have through Christ or in Christ through baptism is a life that is it is a lie. It's the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. That's why he says in uh, in verse four that we'll be in the likeness of his resurrection. We're walking in this newness of life, which reminds us of another text that Paul wrote uh, in 2 Corinthians when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All the new has, all, all, all things have become new. So chapter 6 is this uh, glorious declaration of this death to sin and this being alive to God. Now, the problem with that is that it doesn't seem to to mesh with our daily life, our daily struggle with sin. And that's why Paul goes on in chapter 6, verse 12 and following, to exhort them to live out this life of uh, dedication to God, not being obedient to the lust of the flesh, but to the law of God. And he continues that struggle. He describes that struggle in very personal terms in chapter 7. If we were to read chapter 7, Marcus, Mm -hmm. just by itself, we might tend to think that Paul here is describing his experience before he was a believer, before he was a Christian. Because he talks about how how he is seems to be like a slave to sin, but but when you put that chapter seven between chapter six and chapter eight, then what you realize is that the struggle of the Christian life is being is the subject here. In other words, even though we are baptized into Christ, even though we receive the Spirit, even though we are united to Christ in His death and resurrection, we still have this struggle with the remnants of sin that is going on within us. And yet, at the same time, Paul says then in verse, the verse of chapter 7, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even, he says, so on the one hand, I, in my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And he moves right into chapter 8 and comes up to this wonderful declaration, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, in our inner person, in our inner man, we are serving God and there's no condemnation there. But we're still struggling with this sin nature that we have, this concupiscence, this this lingering that, uh, body of sin that drags us down. And so chapter 8 is where Paul is launching into now his call to and his description of how we live a life dedicated to the Spirit. That's where we need to get to in our lives, is a life controlled by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. In the same way that chapter 6, 7, and 8 can be seen like a sandwich, where 6 is about the change that happens as a result of baptism, and 8 is the call to continue in the reality of that, and in between mm-hmm. is, is, in fact, chapter 7 is about the reality of the struggle. It brings us back to the fact that our lives are like a sandwich, because if if we look at chapter six, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's one side of the sandwich of our lives. If by baptism through faith in Christ, we now 
have entered into our union with him. And we are in Christ. And as Paul will say, the spirit dwells within us and Christ dwells within us. That's one side of the sandwich. On the other side of the sandwich is the future of our lives, which Paul says in verse 4 of 6 and 5, that for if we have been united with him in a death like him, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's what we look to in the future. That's the other bread of the sandwich, is that one day we hope by the grace of our Lord and who, who empowers our intellect and our will to turn from sin, that we hope that one day we will experience this resurrection. That's the two sides of the sandwich, but in the in- interim, between our baptism and one day, maybe by grace, experiencing the beatific vision of Christ, we continue in the battle that Paul witnessed himself in chapter 7. Can I believe that chapter 7 was one of the greatest gifts that Paul ever gave us? Because he basically said to us, we're in this together. We recognize that by grace we've been changed. The old is gone, the new has come. But we still, as Paul will say in this passage, we must walk according to the Spirit and set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Well, I think that in, in chapters, you know, four and five, and three, four and five, Paul was, remember that Paul was arguing that the law doesn't have the power to save us because it doesn't change us on the inside. That's what the grace of God does through baptism. It changes us on the inside so that we do not sin just against the law, but we sin because we don't want to sin anymore. In other words, we've been transformed. What chapter 7 is telling us in a a different sort of way, from a different angle, is the same thing. Not only are we justified by faith through baptism, but we're going to be sanctified by faith as well. That is, we're going to be sanctified by the grace of God as we place our trust and our hope and our love in for God and in God. That's where he's leading us in chapter 8 when he talks about this mindset of the, of the spirit, which is opposed to the mindset of the flesh. The foundation of that is to realize as we live in Jesus Christ, in his spirit, in the realm of his love and his grace, then there's no condemnation for us. And that lifts us out of the great, uh, out of our, you might say, the, the mud puddles of our lives and says, you know, you're a different person in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation here. You are not to serve this stuff anymore. And I think, you know, probably many of our listeners can, can point to a truth that you and I know as well. And that is, in order to overcome a particular sin or particular temptations in our lives, we have to say, you know what? I no longer belong to that thing. That doesn't belong to me. That's not who I am anymore. I am a different person in Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do, uh, well, Ken, actually what we've just done is an overview of the very passage we're looking at today. So if, if we don't get to it all, the audience can can just look at verses 1 through 11 in the context of what we've just been discussing, because that's an overview of everything Paul has said here. But what I'd like to do for the time we have is to look at 1 through 11 in little chunks and, uh, and glean from them the significance of what Paul wants to remind us of about what has changed in us and how we are called to live. In verse 1, uh, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Now, the, the, the sad thing is, is that the beauty and the, the truth of this passage has been, I think, misapplied by too often taking this verse out of the context in which Paul spoke it, um, to the point of using this passage to emphasize a once saved, always saved theology. To, if you take this passage, it sounds like, therefore, if you're in Christ Jesus by faith, then you are now free from ever experiencing condemnation. This once saved, always saved, pointing to a time back 50 years ago when I accept Jesus at a Bible camp, and therefore, because I am now His, I will therefore be assured that I will one day be saved regardless of how I live my life. But that's a misrepresentation of the passage when it's taken out of its context. I think that's clear in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 4 of chapter 8, Marcus, what you just said. Because there he says that the reason that God sent his son into the world, as he talks about in chapter, excuse me, in verse 3, that he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, was so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And who is this us? This is those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, it's not just a one-time thing, but it's a walk. It's a lifestyle of living not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And any sensitive Christian, whether Catholic or otherwise, can tell you, I think very clearly, how tempting it is to live according to the flesh as opposed to according to the spirit. Now, we do have to explain here very, very quickly that the words katasarka, according to the flesh, are opposed to katapneuma, according to the spirit. But Paul here is not talking about a distinction between the physical and the non-physical. By katasarka, or by the according to the flesh, he means that by that sinful nature that manifests itself through our bodies. He doesn't mean the body is sinful, but he means that the body has been is dragged down through the sinful inclinations that show themselves through our flesh. You know, Ken, as we're doing the study here, it just struck me for the first time how wrong I used to be when I used to use a particular evangelization program that promoted a theology of conversion. And this particular program had a list of questions that we used door to door with people. And it began with the question, uh, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and God asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would your answer be? And the assumption was that the average person would say, well, I've been good or I've gone to church or I've been baptized. And, and the correct answer was that a person when it stands before God, we, we don't look to anything to ourself. We are to point to Jesus, whose righteousness covers us, covers our sinfulness, covers it, and that God doesn't see our sinfulness, but only sees the righteousness of Christ. Because, in that theology, the righteousness, of the requirement of the law was fulfilled in Jesus. That's what we assume, that the just requirement of the law was fulfilled in Christ, and therefore I point to him for my salvation. 
But Ken, as you emphasize, that's not what Paul says here, is that we have been plucked out of sin by grace through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, who took all of our sins on him so that we might be united with him through baptism, empowered by grace, so that we can live faithfully to him, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's a powerful statement by Paul. Yeah, that's that's the walk of the Christian life. And in our past programs, Marcus, you've mentioned many times the the great saints, you know, uh, <clears throat> describe for us various stages of this journey that usually those are talked about in three stages, the, the purgation, the illumination and the union. And that's a progression toward God. The great saints of the past have shown us that examples of what it is to live the purgative life, the illuminative life, and ultimately the unit of life in Christ. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. And the word that he uses, I think, in verse 5 and verse 6, verse 7, is the word rightly translated, I think, in our version here, the mindset. What is a mindset? Well, it's not just an occasional thought, but it's an entire way of thinking. And Paul says here in verse 5 that those who are according to the flesh place, set their mind on the things of the flesh, right? And he means that the sinful things, the things that come through there, are sinful nature. And so what Paul is saying here, I think it really is, is summarized so um, succinctly in verse 6. The mindset of the flesh leads to death. The mindset of the spirit leads to life and peace. If we want to be with God at the end of our life, what we're going to have to do is to take on this phronema, is the Greek word, this this mindset of the Spirit. And I think this is what Paul's talking about, going to talk about later on. One of my favorite verses probably in all of the Bible in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 yeah. and 2, where he talks about the fact of not being conformed to this age, but being transformed by the renewal of the mind. Remember at the end of chapter 7, Marcus, he says back there that I serve God with my mind. I serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of the Spirit. In other words, the transformation comes from the inside out. To me, that's what's so beautiful about the Catholic understanding of salvation. It's a transformation from the inside out. You talked earlier in the program about, in the quote from Lumen Gentium, the necessity of being in the body of Christ. And that being in the body of Christ, or as Paul says in this phrase, in Christ, comes through baptism. And in the, the, the importance of that is exactly that it isn't through our efforts that we become a part of the body of Christ by grace. And that's the surrender to baptism, as Paul talks about in chapter 6. We're, we're put to death. We allow ourselves to die through baptism. And when we are in Christ through baptism, we are changed, as you said in the 2 Corinthians 5.17 passages. But in verse 9, he really emphasizes this. It's like he, he pulls away from his argument to confront his audience and says, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now that's that's almost as powerful as the verse of uh, the quote you gave from Lumen Gentium, Ken. You know that the necessity of being in the Spirit. Well, how does one get in the Spirit? Through baptism. The necessity of that. And when you think historically, the missionaries that have gone off into the world, sacrificing their lives to proclaim the gospel of Christ, one of the main things they wanted to do was to not just tell people about Jesus, to get them to believe in Jesus. They wanted them to be baptized. And I think about that when I came into the Catholic Church, I took as my patron saint, Saint Isaac Jogues, who was a Jesuit missionary to North America, who desired to take the gospel to the Huron Indians of of Canada. And there was no group of, of invincibly ignorant people in the world than the Huron Indians. So why not leave them to themselves? They're invincibly ignorant. They're not guilty. But the truth is that the missionaries recognized that in the seed of their conscience was the implantation of a desire for God. And so they went to them, and the number one goal was that they might be baptized so they might be in Christ Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Boy, the stories of people like St. Isaac Jogues and all these wonderful missionaries like um, St. Francis Xavier and all the other Jesuits and Dominicans uh, that went to the East, you know, to China, to Japan, all that. These are really inspiring stories. Um, they're, they're stories of courage that we could and should put in front of young people today, in front of our children and grandchildren. And as you said rightly, what motivated them? What motivated them was this belief that if any man is, does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Yeah. Right? Well, we doesn't. We don't know who and who does and does not have it. But we do know, as you said earlier, that the normal means of receiving the spirit is through baptism. So why did Isaac Jodes risk life and limb to come to North America from France in order to? Uh, to share this message because he wanted people to be in Christ. And he knew that being in Christ came through the preaching of the gospel and through the application of the sacrament of baptism. And so it was a deep love and profound love of Christ uh, that that compelled him and impelled him to come to North America. And, you know, it's funny because when we think about it, had they not come, then our ancestors would not have received that gospel. Right. Uh, and, the, and the native peoples of this land would not have received the gospel. And yet they did. And as they did, even among them rose great saints like St. Kateri Kataketawa. Uh, so we have these wonderful saints that remind us of the urgency to preach the gospel so that people might receive the Spirit through baptism. If we take what Paul says as gospel, <laughs> then those who are not <laughs> yeah. in Christ, verse 10, are, it's not just their bodies that are dead to sin, but their entire person is still yeah. enslaved to sin. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we not only proclaim the truth, but we want them to experience the sacraments of baptism, confession for their sin, confirmation of the gifts of the Spirit in their life, and the great mm. gift of the body of the Christ, body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. Because if they are in Christ, then verse 10 says, then there's, even though the body still struggles with passions 
as Paul says in chapter 7, even though we ourselves, every one of us listening, and me, we still struggle every day with temptation and the passions, the struggle to be drawn away from Christ, yet our spirits are alive because of righteousness, Paul says. We've been changed by grace. Well, that, that's a great point because, you know, I think we have to emphasize the fact that and every good and holy priest knows this when he listens to con, uh, confessions of sins in the confessional. Um, and that is, there's this, there's this going to be this gap in our lives. Hopefully that gap is nearer as we cut closer to the end of our life. But there's a gap between the man I want to be and the man that I am. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that I still struggle with these sins, but I want, I desire to be closer to God, to be freer from sin, to be more filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Paul is calling us to when he does this, uh, when he talks in this passage about this mindset of the Spirit that leads to life and to peace. It might be worth pointing out, too, that even though I said earlier that this phrase, according to the flesh, or living you know, by, by the flesh, or by the way of the flesh, he's not talking about just the physical body. He's talking about the sinful inclinations. Yet, there is something here we, perhaps we should uh, emphasize that, that the great saints, like St. Saint Isaac Jogues and, and the great missionary saints, that they emphasize, and that is that it does take a mindset that is set upon the things above and not upon this earth. In other words, if we're going to be holy in this life at all and have hope of the life to come, there does has to be a certain amount of asceticism in our lives. There has to be a denial. There has to be a detachment from things. And I just, I guess I realize how hard that is for a lot of people. Maybe they're attached to money. Maybe they're attached to shopping, for example, you know, shop yep. until you drop. Maybe, maybe they're attached to, um, uh, uh, you know, things like alcohol or tobacco or things like this, uh, which in moderate use are okay. It's not sinful, but maybe people are attached to them too strongly, or maybe people are attached to just their own self-image. Uh, these are the things that Paul is calling us. Put these things away so that you can be more fully devoted to Christ and to his church. I'm reminded of a quote from this morning's Office of Readings by St. Augustine. He says, I implore you to love with me and by believing to run with me. Let us long for our heavenly country. Let us sigh for our heavenly home. Let us truly feel that here we are strangers. That's what we're called to do. Yeah, if the spirit of him yeah. dwells in us, then we are to walk in the spirit in honor of our Lord who gave his life for us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. Look forward to joining you next week. Check out the website so that you can hear more about our study of Romans. God bless you. See you next week.